Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to uh, the book of Nehemiah. It's in front of the Psalms, um, a couple of books before the Psalms. So, um, you follow now as I read the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is all also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this word endures forever. Guys, I think I've told you before about the, um, the uniqueness of the impact that, that stories make on us. Um, I think the best example that I've ever given you is the example of... Um, Nathan, the prophet, who goes to see David after his affair with Bathsheba. If you don't remember that, let me tell you real quick. Um, You remember David commits adultery with Bathsheba, impregnates her, and then has her husband sent to the front line so that he will be killed, and killed he was. Um, He then takes Bathsheba as his wife and thinks that he's gotten away with everything. He thinks that uh, there's been the cover-up has worked and that all can go back to normal. But God has seen and God has revealed it to Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes, uh, makes an appointment with David and goes into his office and says, David, could I talk to you a minute? And and, um, he sits down with David the king and and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. He tells a story about two people, fictional people, who live in Jerusalem. One of the persons that lives in Jerusalem is very, very wealthy, has all kinds of sheep and much resource. The other man is a poor man. He has only one sheep that he loves uh, tenderly and um, uh, treats the sheep like as if the sheep were his daughter. Well, a, a visitor comes into town to visit the very wealthy man, and the wealthy man, instead of taking one of his sheep out of his flocks to uh, slaughter to feed for his visitor, goes and steals from the poor man his one sheep and slaughters it instead and feeds it to his, to his uh, guest. And David, upon hearing that story, says, That man should die. <laughs> and then Nathan says, Thou art the man. It's you, David. It's you I'm talking about. And David has been caught by a story. (laughs) That's the unique impact of a story. They, they, 
they turn in on us. They, they draw us in. You know, I've told you that I can be up here preaching my little heart out and, and boring you to tears and, and seeing all of you, you know, doodling on your, um, on your, your um, bulletins and making your, your grocery list for next week. And, and, um, and then I say, um, let me tell you a story. And all of a sudden people look up because that's the nature of a story. They, they have a, an impact on us that lectures don't have. Of course, Jesus was, was the master storyteller, and that's what parables are, guys. Um, I mean, he told more stories than anybody. And, um, but he uses stories to, to teach his people kingdom principles. He, he illustrates the, the nature of the kingdom, and so often it is, it is by, by using stories that he does that. Well, I say all of that to say this, ladies and gentlemen. This is a story. The book of Nehemiah is a story. And it is a story that is not frequently told. Not many of us know much about the story that is the book of Nehemiah. Um, and, And as I told you last week, this story, the book of Nehemiah, is designed to ultimately pave the way for the coming of Christ. The story, known as Nehemiah, will leave us asking, is there anybody else? Is there anybody greater than Moses or David or Nehemiah? That's what the story is designed to do. It's designed to call you in, to turn in on you, and leave you with a, with a vacuum, with a sense that is there, is there somebody out there better than Nehemiah? This story, um, as it opens, it gives you a couple of verses, verses one and two, of just kind of a who, when, and where, um, that's, that's just kind of setting the backdrop for you. And then you come to verse 3, and what you find in verse 3 uh, is a report. It's a report given by a man whose name is Hanani, who Nehemiah calls one of his brethren, apparently one of his, a brother of his. And he is giving to Nehemiah a report about how things are going in Jerusalem. Um, and Hanani says, the people who survived the captivity, who were back in Jerusalem, are in great distress. And that, those English words really are somewhat of an understatement, ladies and gentlemen. Um, do you know the word shalom, the, the Hebrew word? It's a greeting. Um, if you ever go to Jerusalem, um, they're still using it over there, shalom. I mean, they don't say, how you doing? They say, shalom. Uh, shalom is a word, a Hebrew word, which means um, kind of an overall complete health. I, I, I say that because the word that is found here in great distress is the word that is the antithesis. It's the opposite of shalom. If shalom is complete wellness, then everything in Jerusalem 
is complete unwellness. They're in great distress. They're in complete unwellness. And then you come to verse 4, and you read of Nehemiah's response to that report. Look at it. Verse 4. Nehemiah weeps. And he weeps for days. You know, guys, when we read those words, Jerusalem is in great distress, you know, it, it really doesn't, doesn't impact us. But when um, Nehemiah heard them, oh, it impacted him. And I want you to know why. And that's what I'm going to tell you in the coming minutes. But Nehemiah weeps. He weeps fervid tears. <laughs> there was quite a little um, discussion this week in the church office about what the word fervid means. I mean, guys, it's just a word that means hot, burning. It describes a, um, a situation of intense emotion. And Nehemiah weeps fervid tears. Um, and he does so for many days. Upon hearing that the people who have survived the captivity, who are back in Jerusalem, they're in great distress. Why? Why is it that Nehemiah is so upset? Well, guys, um, it's at this point that I think a little... Um, a little biblical history would, would help you. I, I, I hope this will not lose you and bore you, but um, if, you, if you get this backdrop, it'll help you understand the whole book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, of course, is a Jew. Um, he is working um, as a cupbearer. We're told that in verse 11 of chapter 1. He's a cupbearer. What's a cupbearer? Um, uh, is it a butler? <laughs> No, it's, it's far more than a butler. Um, a cupbearer was a trusted confidant. He was the one who tasted the king's wine before it was given to the king to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So he was an intimate. He was, he was close to the king. He was an advisor um, uh, to the, the man that he worked for. Um, but, the, but the question is, what, what is a good little Jewish boy doing um, as a cupbearer to a pagan king in a, living in a pagan city of Susa, the capital. What's a, what's a good Jewish boy doing in a place like that? Doing what he's doing? Well, again, a little history will help you. First of all, guys, you've got to understand that the Bible is not arranged chronologically. Did you know that? The Bible is not arranged chronologically. It's arranged thematically. You have, you have um, sections, themes. You have the first five books of the Bible called the Law of Moses, the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's a, that's a, that's a section. It's called the Torah, you know. Um, and then the, the next section of the Old Testament is what is called 
of course, the historical books. It's Joshua and Judges, and then you go to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then these brief books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, <coughs> which are all <clears throat> historical books. And then you come to a section that is wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes. That's what's called wisdom literature. And then you, after that, you come to the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Those are the major prophets. And then you come to a section which is known as the, um, the minor prophets. The minor prophets are all those guys, Joel and Obadiah and uh, Zechariah and, and uh, Jonah and Amos, all those guys. If you insist upon thinking chronologically, then you need to take the book of Nehemiah and put it at the end of your Old Testament. Because the, 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 the account, the events in the book of Nehemiah are the last events that are given to us about Israel before we enter that period of 400 years of silence. Um, it's called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The last book that you have chronologically, historically, uh, before that 400-year silence is the book of Nehemiah. Now, you, you recall, I hope, that the, the father of Israel was a man by the name of Abraham. You remember the three great uh, patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Isaac was the um, miracle son of Abraham and Sarah, and then um, uh, Isaac has a set of twins uh, known as Jacob and Esau. God sets aside Esau and works through the line of Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons through Rachel and Leah, and 11 of those sons conspire to murder their brother, whose name is Joseph. But instead of murdering him, they ultimately sell him to a caravan that's moving down into Egypt. And um, while he's there, he's sold on an auction block as a slave. And he goes into to Potiphar's house. And you remember Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, um, but he is thrown into jail after that. And then through this remarkable set, series of events, um, because of a dream that's given to Pharaoh the king. And Joseph interprets that, king, that, that dream for Pharaoh. Joseph is then elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. He becomes number two. In fact, Pharaoh says, uh, if you want food, if you want to live, you're going to have to go to Joseph and get it. Joseph is the one who will deliver you from the famine. Um, then Jacob's, I mean, uh, Joseph's dad, Jacob and his 11 brothers are starving. And so they are living up north of Egypt. And so they finally come down to get some food. Uh, and they discover that it's Joseph that's distributing the food. They all move down to Egypt and there that story ends. The book of Exodus opens up 430 years later when, of course, Joseph and all of his brothers are dead and nobody remembers Joseph anymore. Nobody gives a wit about Joseph. In fact, they've developed a great hatred for the Jews. And so God raises up a, a, a deliverer. His name is Moses. You remember those 12 plagues that, that uh, uh, ultimately catapulted them out of Egypt? Moses leads them out into the, or towards the promised land, but they, they, make, they really sin badly. And so they end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. It's Joshua that ultimately takes them into the promised land. They get into the promised land and they, they, you know, they start out pretty good, but then of course it doesn't go well. And so they ask for a king. They're given a king, 
His, the first king of Israel is a guy by the name of uh, Saul. Saul, again, he starts out pretty good, but he doesn't do too well. And he gets killed in a battle against the Philistines. And then the, the next king, of course, is David. The, uh, the shepherd boy that slew Goliath, the, 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 the writer of half the Psalms. He becomes the king, does really, really well, except for the uh, Bathsheba incident. And then his son follows him. His name is Solomon. And under those two kings... That's Israel's golden age. When Solomon dies, the kingdom splits in two. Two tribes in the south, um, Judah and Benjamin, which is, the, um, which is called Judah, and then ten tribes in the north. Uh, ten tribes in the north, is which is called Israel. Ultimately, God judges them both. In 722 BC, the Assyrians come and destroy the northern kingdom, Israel, and drag them into captivity. Judah in the south lasts another 150 years when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar come and destroy Jerusalem and drag Jerusalem um, into captivity. Nehemiah is not among those captives. But his mother and father probably are. They're probably not even married yet. But they're in those captives, and they are dragged away into Babylonian captivity. And then here comes the Persians. The Persians then destroy Babylon, overrun Babylon. And the first Persian king, whose name is Cyrus, allows any Jew that wants to go back to Jerusalem to return. With his blessing, they go back under Zerubbabel and Joshua, another Joshua, and then another group about 20 years earlier than this book of Nehemiah, led by Ezra, they go back, and Hanani is probably among that group that went back with Ezra. Hanani then comes back to report to Nehemiah. To Nehemiah as to what has happened there in Jerusalem and his report we've already read. They're living in reproach. The, um, there's no wall. The gates are burned. One commentarian said a city with no walls and no gates was not a city at all. Well, that's what, that's what Jerusalem is. So how is it, ladies and gentlemen, that that God's people get themselves in such a state? Sin. Sin always destroys. It mutilates. It, it undoes. And when, when Nehemiah is told of the, is told that the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins, Nehemiah is in shock. And um, having heard his report, a man who is overcome with grief, he weeps for days. Because this is one of the men who are left among the captives who is burdened for God's glory and God's people. Um, And you're going to see 
as this story unfolds, just how God-centered is this man, Nehemiah. But hold on. I told you last week, this story is not about Nehemiah. Nehemiah does some great things. But the, but the story is not about Nehemiah. It's about Nehemiah's God. And the, the first thing that you read when Nehemiah, before he gets ready to pray, we're told in verse 4, he mourned for many days and was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this, this story is not about Nehemiah. It's about Nehemiah's God, the God of heaven. Nehemiah wants you to know right away that he's focusing upon the God of heaven. And he's going to tell us later on in this book, he's going to tell us that not only does God live in heaven, in chapter 9, he's going to tell us that God made heaven. He's going to call him, as he does in verse 5, the great and awesome God. He's going to call him the great and awesome God numerous times in the course of his book. This story, as it unfolds, will expose you to numerous of the attributes of God. Oh, no. Not again. Not more, not more theology. Not more discussions about who God is. Not that. Yes, that. Guys, we're going to look at a number of the attributes of God as they are mentioned by Nehemiah. Because ultimately, that's why Nehemiah writes his story. So that you can come face to face with his God. And so from the outset of the book, even before he opens his mouth, he introduces you to the God of heaven. And the God of heaven moves center stage. Because you see, Nehemiah understood that you are what you are and you do what you do. In light of what you think about this God. The choices that you make, the life that you live, the ethics that you choose. Are all made. In light of the God of Nehemiah. You know guys, I, I told you this two weeks ago. That you and I. We get ourselves in such big messes, maritally and familially and financially and emotionally. We get ourselves in such big messes because, because we do not fear God. And, 
And because we do not fear God, we have such meager thoughts of God. Guys, this book is not going to introduce to you a meager God. It's going to discuss with you the God who made and rules in heaven. It's going to present to you a God who is great and awesome. You see, Israel had gotten themselves in a big mess too. Kind of like ours. Because Israel no longer thought of God as the ruler, the sovereign prince of all that existed. And my friends, you listen to me. To the degree that you think meager thoughts of God is the degree to which you live morally meager lives. You toy with sin as if it's a trifle. And then you wonder, how did my life get so messed up? That meager God, ladies and gentlemen, that some of you have. You're not going to meet him in this book. Immediately, we are introduced in verse 4 to the God of heaven. The God of a supreme, ultimate power. This God that reigns from heaven. And this God is introduced to you before Nehemiah says a word. Guys, Nehemiah was, was probably born in captivity. Um, he grew up in a culture that was pagan. He was surrounded by, by polytheism. But in this one man, and I'm sure there were others, but at least in Nehemiah, there is this heart that beats for the, for, the, for the glory of the God of heaven. God's people there in Jerusalem were in such a state that they were reproach. You know what that means? They were an embarrassment. God's people were an embarrassment. They, they, they lived lives that caused all the Gentiles around them to laugh. You know, guys, um, you followed, I'm sure, this news story this, all this week and about this county clerk in Kentucky who, who refused to give the, um, the wedding certificates to the, uh, the, the uh, gay community. 
And you know, you can, you can chat about that all you like and you can, you can say what you say, what you, you can choose to believe what you want to believe. The, the, the thing that so grieved me was that once she claimed the authority of God, the media, mocked what kind of fool believes in a God who has authority you know why that's happened don't you ladies and gentlemen because the people of God We live meager lives. Nehemiah's parents, they were captives. And while they're in captivity, they have a child. And they name him Nehemiah. A word which means, and Yahweh is our comfort. There's a, there's a couple of parents who still believe, even in captivity surrounded by paganism, they believe in the God of heaven and they taught their son. There are people, while in exile, living in a godless culture, who mourn over the fact that God is mocked by their culture. And they also believe that God has not abandoned them ultimately. So Nehemiah grows up hearing of God's faithfulness with paganism all around him. And he grows up hearing of Jerusalem, the city of God, this Zion, the city where the temple was built, where God used to identify his, with his presence at, at this city in, called Jerusalem that he's never seen. He's only heard of it. And it lies in shambles. And his righteous heart is aroused. Broken. Because he had heard of the city of this great God that was now no city at all. And now you know why he wept. Fervid tears for day. And so he says, I've got to do something about this. I've got to go and deliver my people. So he comes up with a plan. A plan to deliver his people. Because um, they're in bondage. And so listen, 
Listen, ladies and gentlemen. So he chooses to leave the comforts of the king's palace And he travels to a place that has been destroyed by sin so that he can build a wall sometime around 445 B.C. And yet, as impressive as all that Nehemiah does is, what he achieves is nothing but a temporary deliverance leaving Israel to ask. Is there another Nehemiah? Is is there a greater Nehemiah? Is there someone who can ultimately set us free from the bondage of our sin? Is there anybody out there who can set us free from this tyranny? Oh, we've got a wall. But we're still slaves. God, is there a deliverer out there somewhere? Yes. There is another who when he looked at the state of Jerusalem, he wept too. He wept fervid tears. And so he decides that he must leave the comforts of the king's palace and travel to a place that has been ruined by sin and bring with him all of the resources of the king. But he doesn't come to build a wall. He comes To remove a curse by becoming a curse for us. He knows knows that walls are nice, but the biggest thing that we need is not a wall. What we need is forgiveness of sin. And there is but one way to accomplish that. Let someone go and die in the place of his people. The greater Nehemiah, whose name is Jesus, leaves his home in glory arrives at a place ruined by sin and dies in the place of of his people. Not so that they can have a wall, 
but so that they can be delivered from the bondage of sin. If you never ever remember Nehemiah's name again, it'll be fine. But you must never forget. Christ and him crucified for his people. Our Father, would you, um, would you use a story such as this to draw your people in so that they might see we're the ones. We're the ones who have been ruined by sin. We're the ones. We're the ones who need a deliverer. We're the ones whose hearts are empty until they're filled up with the triune God. Now, Father, would you, um, would you open the eyes of those who are here without a Savior to see that though they may have certain provisions, what they're missing is they're missing a Savior. And there's only one of those. Would you cause them to see the great beauty of not of what Nehemiah did, but the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done. We ask it all, of course, in Jesus' name.